0: afraid to push them to answer those tough questions about what's really happening in that dating relationship that they have. As a parent, if you sense something, more than likely, you're uh, correct. Oftentimes, we have these abusers that put themselves in a position where they play victim. I've seen bad relationships and how progressive and deadly domestic violence can be. Sum it up, on that cycle, it's based on rewards, punishments, and fear. At one point, he actually came into their apartment and was hiding underneath the kitchen sink. I think he was jealous. I think that he was evil and ultimately, I think he's pure evil and that is why he did this.
1: I'm Bill Mitchell and this is When Dating Hurts, a podcast dedicated to my daughter Kristen and all women taken from us before their time by the epidemic known as dating violence. I will speak with authorities in domestic violence, law enforcement professionals, families of victims and survivors, and actual survivors themselves. I met Jim McGowan by phone the evening of June 3rd, 2005. He was the first person who could give me details about what happened earlier that day to my daughter, Kristen. We stayed in contact over the years. Jim is a lieutenant with Montgomery County, Pennsylvania's district attorney's office. He has been with the homicide unit since 2000. Jim has participated in over 500 homicide investigations. Jim has conducted training in the area of homicide, Death scene investigation and investigative strategies for violent crimes. He is a graduate of the FBI National Academy and is a certified senior polygraph examiner. I'm honored to be able to speak with Detective Jim McGowan on the When Dating Hurts podcast. For the purposes of this episode of When Dating Hurts, we will use the paradigm of males and females in dating relationships. I feel it needs to be said that dating abuse and violence happens equally in every kind of relationship. So, Jim, it's so good to catch up with you. I know it's, uh, you're a, an extremely busy man, and you're working on critically important things, of course, so uh, catching up with you is, is something I've looked forward to really uh, I know I've told you this, but I've been looking forward to speaking with you for
0: months, and here we are. Bill, it's great to talk to you and hear you, uh, hear all the work that you're doing uh, in the area of domestic violence. Um, I've, I know we've kept in touch over the years uh, intermittently, and then when your book came out, it was great to be part of that and actually part of the, the message that you're sending out to all those people that domestic violence impacts.
1: Thank you, Jim. You were very, very helpful. And I really think some of the strongest parts of the book were those that you you honestly gave to me. You know, in some phone calls that we've had, you you opened up about some of the things that I, I'm sure we'll talk about today that that were just stunning. So you you have a you have a very I don't want to say difficult job, because maybe to you it doesn't seem difficult, but I know it's a critically important job, and I heard that right from the very beginning from the prosecutor of the case. So, Jim, if I could, just sort of starting out big picture here, please give us a sense of the prevalence of intimate partner violence in today's dating
0: relationships from your point of view. It's been my experience over the past 34 years of law enforcement that dating violence, it is prevalent. Um, It does not know any barriers between race, gender, or socioeconomic status. I have seen from uh, the first time when I was a young uh, police officer responding out to domestic calls, uh, I'd seen how it has uh, transformed where it was initially handled within the family were within the family structure until certain laws had changed. And as it progressed, uh, we were able to uh, change the laws regarding domestic violence here in Pennsylvania and uh, take a firm stance on when there was indications of any abuse, physical abuse or violence uh, within uh, or on either one of those uh, intimate partners. Uh, The other one would be arrested and charged with a violation of um, assault and pertaining to the uh, domestic uh, violence statute in Pennsylvania.
1: I remember years ago, before this ever happened to Kristen, I mean a lot of years ago, I used to hear things like if, let's say, a wife has just been roughed up, and that's putting it kindly, by her husband— that police could arrive. They'd kind of, maybe everybody sits down and on the couch or chair and has a conversation and the police are kind of shaking their finger and like, you really, you know, you shouldn't do stuff like that. And wasn't it wasn't the case back then. It was pretty much like they would feel like when things, when, when peace was restored, then they'd kind of leave, get in the, get in their squad car or whatever it is and, and drive away. And and that's kind of it. I mean, that's kind of what you're referring to, isn't exactly it? Exactly
0: what I'm referring to. It uh, was based upon uh, the report by the, the victim, the assaulted party, where they would have to you know, be willing participant to uh, prosecute uh, that offender, whether it be boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife. And there were a lot of things to take into consideration during that time if it was a uh, a house, uh, and you were the homemaker, the person you know, you'd be having the person who supported you, paid the mortgage or paid the rent, and all of the other uh, provided all the other necessities for life, and possibly even was the person that provided the financial support for your children, they would be arrested and not be permitted back into the house. And that was a really strong factor in keeping victims from stepping forward and deciding that hey uh, you know this is not right and this could become more progressive and uh, unfortunately i have to weigh out the impact on making an arrest having my uh, partner arrested or uh, you know facing you know financial strife
1: my understanding too, is maybe it's the last ten or fifteen years that the whole feeling about nine one one recordings has changed quite a lot that if it ever comes to court that the nine one one calls are put in there, and that's practically the highest level of evidence right
0: Well now it can even go a step further, not even so much in uh being a nine one one call but now with the implementation of body worn cameras. The uh, police officers that first respond to these calls uh, are recording what the victim is telling them, what the uh, defendant is telling them, and it is proved to be a very valuable tool in gaining uh, evidence in the prosecution in domestic violence cases.
1: That is definitely a huge improvement in getting to the truth about what happened. Are there characteristics that you feel about men and women in these unhealthy relationships that makes them so different from people who are not in these kinds of relationships. And I mean, characteristics about abusers and maybe about those being abused.
0: Based on what I've seen through the years, I always see kind of uh, two traits in an abuser. Uh, They were very power and control assertive. Um, They initially may appear to be very kind, caring, and loving. And, That behavior, as time progresses, subsides. They are especially kind, caring, and loving to the victim in many of these cases uh, when they are in the presence of that victim's family, friends, and parents. Mm
1: -hmm. Right, yes. I've I've heard about it, and I've experienced that. So that's
0: sort of, you'll find that many of these offenders... Their characteristics, their behaviors, uh, keep them, so to speak, flying under the radar, uh, as far as having, you know, the having them found out their true ways being uh, found out to the family, friends, and parents of the victims.
1: Yeah, I remember in a conversation with you one time, I said it to me, it was almost the Eddie Haskell effect, which I don't think everybody listening to this will know who that is, but. But he was kind of the friend of a couple of young guys in a family. He was their pal kind of in high school, but he was devious. And he was always pulling things on these two fellows. But when he was in the presence of their mother named Mrs. Cleaver or, or the father, he was just like the nicest, sweetest and uh, polite fellow you ever met. Sounds like the same kind of thing. Exactly. Can you tell us why a young woman would continue to stay like, I mean, this is a podcast specifically about dating violence, and of course, dating violence and domestic violence are almost one and the same, with the exception of, of course, dating is not married. But can you tell us why a young woman would stay in a relationship or, or continue to date a man who, who maybe has abused her? Do you, I mean, do you have a sense
0: of why she would hang in there? I do. In my experience, I've seen in the past, uh, oftentimes it's for self-blaming they tend to feel that it is their fault that they've brought this behavior out of their um, you know dating partner or their spouse and as a result of that they often become uh, very afraid to tell someone else about what's actually occurring Uh, they don't want to admit failure nobody likes to admit being wrong and also, it's because of fear of that dating partner or spouse.
1: So if they don't toe the line and keep the story going, they're gonna get it again. Yes,
0: saying. and one of the other things that's always very important, and I would say if you reflect back when you first started a dating relationship with someone, and you, uh, whether you'd be very smitten over the person or you felt that, hey, this is the, the person for me, you always want your parents and your friends and your family members to like that person. And when mm-hmm. you put this person out and show what great value they have in your life and all the good and promise that they have for you in your life, it's often very difficult uh, to then step back and admit failure uh, because you have uh, kind of put this uh, person out on so many different levels. And when something goes wrong, you're afraid of that pebble in the pond ripple effect, how people may not trust your judgment anymore, how your parents may think that you are wrong. And these are some of the things that occur during self-blaming.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've heard the term that this kind of abuse, whether it's emotional or physical, Oftentimes, is what some refer to as a crime of embarrassment, so that, as you say, that person who's who is hanging in there and continuing to date this other person they don't want the truth to come out, and they're probably hoping they'll get back to the wonderful days when things were just great, you know the early stages of dating and and uh, you know when this person was everything, you know not this not not the abusive person that person has become, so but yeah, it all it all does tie together a lot. If somebody does become an abuser, Jim, whether it be emotional abuse or physical or both, do you think that person has any chance of stopping that behavior? You know, if they let's say they I don't know. I mean, I would imagine somebody who 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 does these sorts of things started before they were even dating, probably abusing their siblings or friends or things like that, whether they realize that's specifically what they were doing, but but as time wears on, then they kind of get better and better at at this at this unfortunate behavior. So if somebody's truly dating, let's say they're in their mid to late teens or in their twenties, they have, have years behind them of of seeing what works and seeing what doesn't work, and so with all that with all that time, with all that training, so to speak do you think there's a chance they'd they can kind of turn that off?
0: I think it can only be turned off with some type of intervention. And when I say intervention, it's usually going to begin with either an arrest, where they are put into the system, that they are held accountable for their behaviors, and also with some type of therapy component attached to that initial intervention of an arrest uh, or a combination. It's unfortunate, however, what I've seen is when we first have someone who uh, begins engaging in some form of domestic uh, violence, whether it be controlling behavior, mental or physical abuse, oftentimes they kind of lose touch with reality and don't feel that they are held responsible for their actions because of the control that they have over the domestic violence victim.
1: Let's say somebody has some, you know, they they go to, they see a counselor, they take classes. I don't know what they do, but, but what kinds of therapies do you think that would be suggested to somebody who had become a kind of a serial abuser?
0: I would first take a look to see if this abuse is based on some type of a substance abuse, as it could be twofold where you have some type of an addiction combined with some type of a mental health uh, issue. I think that you would need to uh, make assessment on the abuser, whether or not there is any substance uh, abuse. And then once that determination is made, look at the mental health component of it. It seems uh, so much that abusers become so fixated on their victim that they, uh, when they cannot have that control over the person, and the re- relationship ends or is on the, the, the verge of ending, they step back and they engage in some type of a stalker behavior, where they will be trying to monitor the uh, comings and goings of their, you know, former. Uh, partner or spouse, and they often find that spouse or partner doesn't take that stalking very seriously, or they may not be completely aware of the nature of the stalking. Uh, if you have someone who's leaving you cards and flowers uh, or notes on your car as you leave work at you know, five o'clock in the afternoon, that is one type of behavior if you have someone who is sitting out of your house or outside of your apartment at two three four o'clock in the morning uh, looking to see who you're coming home with you may not be aware of that behavior but once it is found that is what i consider to be the high at risk behavior
1: okay so let's say somebody's dating somebody for a moment and they're receiving the abuse the you know this this in this case, the young woman is being abused by this guy, and they've had conversations, and he has ex- his excuses, and he apologizes, and then he kind of drifts right back into it. And this goes back and forth. And let's say that, that she says, you know, we're kind of done, and now he's, he's moving into this other area, whether it's stalking or um, trying to scare her in different ways. Is there, is there really anything that, that she or her, or her parents can do at that point? they're afraid of something might happen but let's say something hasn't really happened that you could take a picture of i guess sure
0: uh, a snapshot in time of the behavior that the offender is uh, exhibiting uh, can speak a thousand words unfortunately they are often uh, very manipulative and well versed in their you know behaviors that they know how to walk the walk talk the talk and stay Beyond that that thin line of you know criminal behavior uh, and you know what would be deemed to be non-criminal behavior, they know what to do to stay out of the crosshairs of an arrest. And I guess the one thing I would always suggest is if you were to take a look at uh, the uh, availability of a protection from abuse order, often known as a stay away order. Um, see what the availability is, what the criteria is, is that is needed, because many of these orders, a protection from abuse order, is uh, are often civil orders where they do not have that that high standard of beyond a reasonable beyond a reasonable doubt for conviction, uh, such as an assault. These domestic orders vary from state to state. Uh, some of them, it has to be a current dating partner. Others can be a former dating partner, but they often offer you the protection so that if one is violated, the police can file in Pennsylvania, what's known as an indirect criminal contempt complaint against the offender who it's being held against.
1: Now, if somebody were to have that filled out, if somebody were to get that order, it has to be served to the abuser, right?
0: That is Correct.
1: That, I mean, that that guy in this story, as we're telling it, he has to be handed that. Is there, this is a bit of a loaded question because I know what my own answer is, but isn't isn't there a fear that if you have someone who has been abusive or has hinted around about abuse, that to hand something to that person that in effect says, I went to the police or I went to a judge and I got this order and you've been served this order and you have to keep away from me 500 feet or whatever this is. Isn't there a concern that that person then might hit a flashpoint and and really dial it up, dial up the bad behavior?
0: That is always a concern. Many of these offenders though need to be told that their behavior is not acceptable and that their spouse or partner is not going to take uh, the abuse anymore and that they've sought help. They've sought some of the resources that are available to them. And these orders also uh, encompass other other components. There's other details within those orders that may require the person to vacate the home for a period of time. It will normally require them to surrender any firearms that they have.
1: Earlier, when you said make a snapshot of what's going on, did you mean literally that, or did you mean that something just happened and The first chance you get, get a pad of paper and a pen and write down specifically what happened and put a date and time on it.
0: Yeah, I meant anything from uh, taking uh, a recording of it. I have even seen where uh, stalker behavior uh, consisted of the former spouse coming to the house at three o'clock in the morning and removing the trash and putting the trash curbside uh, at the home when there was a protection order in effect. And it was almost uh, just a a small way of saying, hey, I've got the control and I want you to know I'm going to continue doing what I want to do. However, the act in of itself was not horrific. If we think about it, it was merely the person taking someone's trash out. That victim could have thought, hey, maybe one of my neighbors did it. So, uh, you know, any type of recording, and also keeping a a diary or a log on these behaviors. If you have phone calls and they are repeated communications that you find to be offensive or threatening, keep a log of it. That's what you're going to need to do to bring a prosecution or to file for a protection from abuse order.
1: So, Jim, let's say for a moment, let's say you're at home, it's you and your wife, and let's say you have a son. And in some conversations, or maybe someone even comes to you one day and says, look, I need to tell you, your son is kind of up to some bad behavior and he's dating this girl and he's abusive and they give examples and you realize, I believe you. So if that were taking place and you heard about it, what do you think you would do? What steps would you take?
0: I think I would do everything in my power as a parent to deescalate That situation. I would be in contact with his girlfriend, spouse, partner. I would be in contact with his friends to see if there is any legitimacy to this. And I would want to have a very good grasp on what these behaviors are to make sure that it, in fact, is occurring and take the appropriate steps i would take an affirmative i would take an affirmative position on trying to stop this behavior from occurring because my fear would be that if this is something that has been progressive it may have been repeated in past relationships that i would not be aware of and i would be as a parent feeling very responsible for the actions that may occur in the future, I would want to rectify the situation and remedy it.
1: So that leads me to the question, do you feel that someone who is an abuser achieves a certain level of abusive behavior, but doesn't go beyond that? I mean, is, is there a limit or, or do you have to, I guess all of us treat it like this could be as bad as your imagination can take
0: it? From my experience, I've seen that most abusers, abusers they achieve a level of abuse. That empowers them that uh, level may change depending upon the control and assertiveness that they feel is needed to control that victim. Everything that I have seen the best way to describe it is it can be progressive and may ultimately become deadly
1: but I guess what you're saying too is that if they can if they can get where they want to go just by yelling at somebody, then maybe they don't take it past that.
0: That may be possible.
1: They want control, but I mean, they don't have to like yell at them one week and then punch them out the next week if yelling at them gets them where they want to go.
0: That's correct.
1: So Jim, you teach college classes on criminology, right? Yes, I do. And I was just curious, uh, looking at the notes you know, that that you had provided, Um, What classes do you specifically teach? And I'm just curious, who attends your classes? I mean, are these people who who attend your classes just kind of curious, or are they serious about getting into law enforcement? Maybe you have a little bit of everything.
0: I teach uh, at a local university in the undergrad program. I teach criminal justice-related classes. I teach uh, ethics, which I have an ethics course that will be starting shortly. I've uh, taught program called Law Enforcement, which is kind of an intro to criminal justice, and also corrections. I see many different types of students. I remember one semester I had uh, only one criminal justice major, and the remaining ones were either nurses, sociology majors, or psychology majors.
1: So in the case of nurses, okay, so... I would imagine that someone then presents themselves, let's just say for a moment at a hospital, and they on their own are doing their homework so they have a better idea of what might have happened before that person presented with some injury or whatever it was. Is that a good guess?
0: Yeah, that is a good guess, though.
1: So Jim, you said you teach a course in ethics, and that kind of stands out. So, So how do you weave that into criminology, law enforcement. I mean, when you say ethics, what's, what actually is taking place in that class?
0: That class is very unique. My class is very writing intensive. It enables students to develop a framework for making ethical decision-making. And it actually reverts back to some of the the great philosophers, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and then it progresses into the modern age and kind of how society has has developed their ethical systems, how we have uh, grown as a society, and the structure that we need to use to make good, sound ethical decisions, and what is the basis for a good ethical decision. If we look back uh, in history, that's where our uh, you know foundations for you know ethics where it was first developed, uh, came from Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, as they each studied upon each other, developed their own theories and uh, learning concepts.
1: So Jim, what would you tell parents if they suspected their daughter or son was involved in in a relationship and and the parents felt uncomfortable about it, meaning that um, they felt that somehow it could become potentially dangerous or
0: abusive? I think the first thing I would uh, tell the audience would be that this dating violence is very progressive and it is something that is very difficult as a parent to discuss with your son or daughter. And I would tell them, have the difficult talk, have that tough conversation. And when you're having that conversation, do not be judgmental. On your son or your daughter because if you become judgmental it is going to shut that window of conversation down with them Um, kids don't like to be uh, told that they're wrong and if you become very judgmental with your child they will shut you out and you have to keep that open conversation with them, to hear what's going on in their life. Be a good listener. And don't be afraid to push them to answer those tough questions about what's really happening in that dating relationship that they have.
1: My daughter was murdered in 2005 by her ex-boyfriend. And no, time doesn't heal all wounds. Since those dark days, I have given over 100 speeches and interviews. To be able to dispense such life-saving information, I needed to do a lot of research. Now it's all in one place. My daughter's story and our family's journey is now available in a book entitled, When Dating Hurts, available only on Amazon in paperback and ebook. If you have a child, a family member, or a friend between 16 and 24 years of age, I suggest you give When Dating Hurts a read. The information in this book has already saved lives. One of the things that I felt when I met Nick, who on the day I met him, which was the day of Kristen's graduation, 20 days later, he murdered her. But I did feel when I first met him, something I mentioned in the book, which was I mean, this is exactly what ran through my my mind at that time was, wow, I'd never want to tangle with this guy. And it was a very strange thing to meet somebody that your daughter is dating. And I'm thinking, I just pictured myself getting into a fight with this guy and it wasn't going to be good for me. And it's it's honestly too bad that I didn't take that feeling and actually do something with it because today, knowing what I know, I well, I mean, I learned pretty quickly back then after Kristen was killed that I wish I had done background checks or I wish I had done something else. But let's say following that, you know, that, that if if they suspected their daughter was in a relationship with somebody and it worried them, what would you advise them to do?
0: There is a great resource and it's called Google. And You would be surprised if you just Google a person's name, what all you can learn about their past, their present, and how or what they've been held accountable for, whether it be an arrest, some other type of uh, positive contact or negative contact with, uh, whether it be school, law enforcement, or whatever. It is an amazing resource. And I would suggest... You could do that. Depending on what state you're in, there are a lot of open records uh, that you can access. In Pennsylvania, we have the Unified Judicial Web Portal where you can put a person's name in at a county. You can actually track any arrest court history that they have, uh, traffic citations, non traffic citations, and even some civil cases. Uh, It is a great resource. One of the other things is. Try to find out from your son or daughter's friends how this person uh, is uh, treating your daughter or your son. Uh, it's very important if you see that the, um, the, the new person in their life is kind of a loner and does not respond well to your son or daughter's friends. That's a pretty good indicator if they are sitting there and they appear to want to control either the access that your son or daughter has to their former friends or uh, even how they're they're interacting around the, the family. It's um, just always good to see. And don't be afraid. If you sense something as a parent, more than likely your spidey senses, if you want to call them, uh, are probably correct
1: i like that you're talking about that because one of the classic areas in in the warning signs of an unhealthy relationship is isolation and so as you say oftentimes guys who are like this are loners and they really want their girlfriends to kind of become loners with the exception of the whole relationship is with the guy so Trying to dial down their friends and the relationships or even trying to trying to step in there and and uh, and separate them from their own parents is all part of the it's part of the act you know it's it's part of this kind of serial behavior right yes it is very much so yeah, Jim, do you feel that some women are just more attracted to to bad boys than other women are I mean that there's some guys out there that you know, I I feel like there are women I've met throughout my life who I felt were kind of fixer uppers. You know, they would find some guy they thought had merit, but but a lot of people would have passed up on that person because they're troubled in some way, and yet some other women just kind of take them in like the wet puppy and think they can they can make them better.
0: I do, and I think a lot of people I've seen women who have great kindness in their heart, and they seem to have a duty of care. And that duty of care uh, leads them to think that, you know, I can change that person. And they also might be very attracted to some of the strong personality traits that that person may have. They may find it to be, uh, you know, attractive that the, the he is very assertive. He makes them feel protected by that initial control that they're trying to, uh, um, have over them.
1: It lines up and makes a heck of a lot of sense. Do you think that, that with all your law enforcement training and, and your expansive knowledge, experience, everything, do you think that, that you could actually predict a future abuser before you actually abuse someone? You kind of talk about these different traits. And it seems to me that, that if, uh, that if you knew someone that had those traits i mean it seems like you I, I guess what i'm looking for here is do you think there are ways to see it coming so that not only can we get the innocent people out of the way but also kind of attend to these people and help them out before they get as bad as they could be
0: Bill, i think if we're we're looking to try to put a profile together on an abuser one of the best things to examine is past practice and actions are a good predictor of future behaviors when it comes to assessing these people. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think oftentimes we have these abusers that put themselves in a position where they play victim so that as they move from relationship to relationship, uh, everyone in the past has done them wrong in some way, shape, or form. Right. Right. Uh, I would just, Say that if you have someone who has had repeated relationships where they consistently claim to be the victim and there has been some form or even allegation of either abuse or stalking, that's a pretty good predictor that that behavior may not have changed. And I would be very careful and very cautious with having... My daughter or family member around that person, based on those prior uh, that prior history.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean that's that's really smart. I had Beth Sturman on the very first podcast that I did, and she said that she works for Laurel House, the domestic violence agency in Norristown. She said that when whenever they have a new employee join them they sit that person down and ask if that person's dating or whatever their situation is, but specifically dating. And then they step up and say, look, we'd really like to do a background check on that person just to be sure that you're safe. And I asked her, have you actually done one of those and and found out that they were dating someone that was potentially trouble or had been trouble in the past and that this, this person didn't know about it. You know, they were dating this guy, seemed okay. And then they found out things. And she said, oh yeah, oh yeah, we've had that happen. You know, you hate to get to the point where you're afraid of everybody. But so Jim, in June, 2005, your daughter was 11 when my daughter was murdered by her ex-boyfriend and you worked on that case. And in fact, you were the very first person that I spoke with. But, uh, was this homicide one that you took home with
0: you, Yes. Did you say? Well, so I would have to say that I've taken home several homicides, uh, and it was one of those things where you wouldn't be talking to your daughter. I did not talk to my daughter at that time. However, uh, when the time was right, when she was in her mid-teens, and even more recently, I've always had conversations with her uh, about relationships that she's had and experiences that I've, I've had where I've seen bad relationships and how progressive and deadly domestic violence can be and physical abuse
1: so so Jim in a conversation we had we talked about the aspects of power and control that that seem to drive abusers to abuse their partners and what are some of the techniques a controlling partner uses to control abused partner
0: so I always like to use symbols and I always think of it as a life cycle or a cycle of abuse uh, in a relationship so I guess if we look we start off with kindness we then start to develop control we then have abuse and then we kind of have a, a combination of forgiveness and That forgiveness by the victim uh, is usually supported by promise by the offender to say, "I'm not going to do this anymore. I've changed my ways. This was a one-time event. I apologize." We then go to the cycle back into the kindness, the care, concern, where it lasts for a period of time, and then the control and abuse begin again in that cycle. And,
1: and right. I mean, I, I've, met, I've met people who've been married 30 years, and and it's been going on the entire time. I mean, it, it's absolutely amazing. You know, a woman showed up at our door that we had known them. We had known that family when our kids were in elementary school, and now it was after Kristen had passed away. So I don't know. We're talking 10 or more years or so. And she came by, and then she kind of opened up about what she had experienced in her own marriage, and that she just hung in there for the kids, and and that type of thing. But but you're right. I mean, it is a it is a cycle. It is a template, and it and they and the same plays just kept running over and over and over. You know,
0: it did. And I guess Bill, if you want to uh, sum it up on that cycle, it's based on rewards, punishments, and fear.
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. When an abuser becomes really violent, do you then see it going into the area of if if I can't have you, then nobody does? I mean, I'm talking like somebody really takes it to the limit and maybe even kills the other person. But do you think that's part of what's in that person's mind?
0: I do. I always look back to a murder case I was involved in back in 2003 Uh, involving a 26-year-old female and her three-and-a-half-year-old daughter. And the offender in that case ultimately uh, strangled her, beat her, and then also strangled and beat her daughter. And the interesting Mm -hmm. dynamic in this case was that the offender had been stalking the victim to the point where at one point he actually came into their apartment and was hiding underneath the kitchen sink. He was able to position himself in and get underneath the kitchen sink oh. and was in the house. Uh, and she had uh, contacted the police and he was actually hiding uh, in that location. Ugh. But with this whole, I if I can't have you, then nobody can have you. He not only had stalked her and harassed her as the relationship uh, degraded and finally ended, he also was harassing the father of the three-year-old who he ultimately murdered. And I think that was, he could not have control over this young woman, or her child. And if he couldn't, he was not going to allow anyone else to. And he also wanted to have complete control over the daughter and murdered her so that it would impact the father. So he wanted to have the, the, the ultimate power and control.
1: Yeah, that is, that is a deep level of hatred, isn't it? Mm. I hope he's still in prison or wherever he is. He's serving two life sentences. That ought to do it. So let me ask you this now, specifically about what happened with my daughter. Let me see if I can take you back to June third, two thousand five. I remember in the days after that, speaking with the prosecutor, she was talking about you were the first person to really sit down with this guy and interview him. You know, I guess uh, you know we we who don't know better call it. His confession, but I know I've learned, it's not called that. It's just called, I believe, an interview. But you had time with him. He was, he was actually in the hospital with what turned out to uh, be found out later. And he actually did admit to the fact later, not at first, that uh, he had injuries, but they were self-inflicted to make it look like a self-defense situation, meaning that he killed my daughter because she was attacking him. It was was his story, at least at first. What do you recall about the interview with with my daughter's
0: killer? Well, I remember this on that day, uh, learning that he had gone to an area hospital reporting to have sustained uh, stab wounds and other injuries as a result of a fight. I went there to interview him at the time that Kristen was uh, found. She was located inside uh, her apartment. When I first arrived, he was at the emergency room bay. He was being treated for some injuries that he readily wanted to display to me. He wanted to show me uh, these cut and lacerations that he had across his arms and across his chest. I remember looking at them and noticing that all the injuries uh, were in locations that a person could inflict upon themselves, So there were no injuries on his back, there were no injuries in any other part of his body that he would not have had access to without his uh, left or right hand. I also noticed that many of these injuries were very superficial. And I'd seen these before when a person tries to engage in some type of a self-inflicted injury. You often see what's described and known as hesitation marks. And I noticed he had hesitation marks. And these injuries were not consistent with what you would normally see during a physical altercation. They were linear. They were straight lines. And they were very superficial. So when I went in to speak with him, I noticed he was very calm, he was very polite, and he was very scripted in what he was going to tell me. One of the unique things that we often find when there is someone who's telling you a very scripted story is that they are very specific about what occurred beforehand, what occurred after the event, and they are very vague about the actual altercation in this case. He was very vague about the physical altercation and the mechanisms as to uh, how he had sustained his injuries.
1: Why do you think that is? Well, when... You know, like you said, the beginning and the end, I would imagine is a little easier to talk about because that's probably reality, but that middle part is a story being in process. So that's my guess,
0: so when you conduct an interview of someone oftentimes, when you break it down into either quarters, thirds, or whatever mechanism that you want to do as an investigator, you often find that people when they're trying to explain the event, if it is very fabricated, they engage in something that's actually known as a temporal lacuna, and that is where you are trying to explain black holes in space and time. Essentially, when you are explaining the inexplicable, it is very difficult to do. It's almost, if you remember, as a parent, if you ever caught your son or daughter taking something or doing something that they were not permitted to to take or to have, and you catch them red-handed, they kind of have a little disconnect between their brain and their mouth on trying to explain what happens. It's all part of your psychological set, how you're made up, how you're wired. And that is the one thing I remember about him during his interview that he was very vague about the actual event, but very specific about certain details prior to and also after the fact.
1: When you were interviewing him, did you have any period of time talking with him where you were kind of tracking this and thought? this was credible and then it fell through? Or did you feel like I'm hearing, a, I'm hearing a fabricated story just about from the beginning?
0: I felt that I was hearing a fabricated story from the beginning due to the fact that I looked at his size, his strength, the inconsistent details about how he actually was injured Did not make sense. And then looking at the physical evidence on his body, those injuries occurred after the fact. They were superficial and they were consistent with someone stabbing or cutting themselves in a straight, linear line.
1: It did kind of portray her as being very aggressive and coming after him. And you're right. You're not going to have these kind of careful, I don't want to call them scratches, but you know something like that
0: yeah i mean you you would see you would see movements you would not see straight lines because when you think about it uh if you're in a fight or you ever watched a, a a physical altercation both bodies are both moving not in sequence one person does not stand still and allow someone to cut or stab them and i also i noticed the absence of any clear definitive defensive wounds on his hands
1: that's a good point Right. So Jim, you told me in a conversation we had one time that oftentimes after you complete an interview with someone who's murdered another person, and maybe this is just part of your walk away from being with that person, you know, you're I don't know, grabbing your keys, walking to your car, but somewhere along the line you kind of sum up in your mind what you feel was the motivating factor that that drove that person to actually commit murder. And so in this case, how would you describe What you thought was the the real undercurrent of what what this guy was all about and what he did when he did what he did when he murdered my daughter.
0: I think his position, Bill, was that if I can't have you, nobody can have you. I think he was jealous. I think that he was evil, and ultimately, I think he's pure evil, and that is why he did this.
1: I mean that's a that's a big statement. I mean that is, I mean that runs about as deep as it possibly can. When you say somebody was pure evil, I mean that's like every fiber of somebody's body. That's amazing. I mean that's just stunning. I know you you had told me that before, but so in this case you were saying it was evil, it was pure evil. You've handled so many cases. What are some of your other walkaways that you kind of think back and say, "Wow, this is what really motivated that person to commit a murder"?
0: Bill, I always look for the why. Was this uh, due to intoxication or addiction, some type of a substance abuse situation, whether it be a a one-time or an ongoing substance abuse issue? Was this for financial reasons or is this for some other motive that we really will never understand? And I have to tell you, in this particular case, I think the reason why is because he was just evil. He was pure evil for what he did to your daughter.
1: That's just shocking. I don't know, there's nothing else to say. Jim, is there a question you feel I might've missed in this conversation? Is there something you feel our listeners need to know that could maybe save a life or save them, maybe save the life of someone they care about?
0: Bill, I would just say that domestic violence And dating violence is something that, as a parent or as a friend, as a brother or a sister, don't be afraid to have that tough conversation and ask the tough question about what's really going on in the relationship. Don't be judgmental. Keep your lines of communication open and remember that past practice and past behaviors are a very good predictor of future behaviors in a relationship.
1: Yeah, I th- I think you've given us just a ton of great advice and you know one of the things that was so tough in our case was that Kristen's friends if you took maybe her closest four or five friends if we had had the opportunity to talk with them before this happened we could have figured this whole thing out and we would have been able to sit down with her and say look this is really going to turn out badly because each and every one of them was done with this guy. They were fearful of him. They kept saying, you need to get space from him. You need to see him for what he is. And that's kind of where she was leading into June 3rd, 2005. That's where she was. And She had had arguments with her friends because they kept harping on it because they cared so much. But she was coming around. And I think that that's when he saw for himself that this was really probably going to end and and that's when he snapped it's everything you've been talking about so if you were to put up a big billboard on what we've been talking about today it would be your message on the subject of dating violence what might it say
0: i would say for the billboard on dating violence don't keep this a secret don't make this a secret Talk to someone and get the resources to help you before it's too late.
1: And Jim, what comes to mind when you say resources? You know, I could I could answer that question. I just want to hear you answer it, but when you say get the resources, where should that person who's listening who says, Wow, you know, I'm figuring this out. This is going on with my kids or this is going on with my friend, this is going on in my own relationship, where would you direct that person immediately?
0: When we're talking about resources. I would go to your local women's shelter. I would contact the police and ask them for the resources that they have available. And I would just check your normal community resources, uh, whether it be your, if you look up women's shelters online, they're going to direct you to where you can get the help that you need, whether it be a temporary shelter, whether it be instruction or assistance on filing a protection from abuse order. And if you go to the police, they're going to be able to provide you with those details also and those and at least direct you to where you can get the help that you need. Yeah, one of
1: the things that I kept writing over and over specifically towards the end of the book, but I say to people when I give speeches is whatever you do, do something. I mean, if you think there's something there, as you said this earlier in this conversation, but if you think something's there, it probably is. Time works against you at that point. You don't want to suspect something's going on, and then days pass, and then you get the phone call that no parent wants, no friend wants, nobody wants. So you, you really have to, you have to trust what you think you see and hear and really pick up the phone or, like you said earlier, Google, get a domestic violence agency on the line, call a hotline. All these people are trained. Chances are the person who suspects what's going on is not trained. And I've told people many times, if you call one of these hotlines, it's not like they're going to send a SWAT team to somebody's house five minutes later. So many people I've met who work in domestic violence agencies are people who have had it happen to them or have had it happen in their family. Nobody I've ever met who works in the domestic violence field went in it for the money. No, they went in for the love of helping other people. So they are way highly motivated to get You to a safer place, whoever you are, you know. So, and and I know you're motivated the same way, Jim. Jim, I'd like to thank you very much for chatting with us today. And I'm sure our listeners and I have learned a lot of things we didn't know before. You know, you know this backwards and forwards, and you know it eyeball to eyeball with the guys that do it. And unfortunately, you've seen a lot of things that none of us we would never sleep again. I'm sure with some of the things that you've you've walked in on and witnessed. So. God bless you and, you know, thanks for, thanks for doing this today. Thanks for being a good friend. And, uh, you know, I have all the admiration in the world for you, Jim. I really do.
0: Bill, I thank you for those kind words. And I really appreciate all that you are doing to bring this topic to light. And thank you. I wish you all the best. Thank you. You too, Jim. Thank you so much.
1: One in three women will suffer serious physical violence at the hands of an intimate partner. It typically happens between the ages of 16 and 24, but could happen at any age. We lost our daughter to dating violence, but if we had read a book like When Dating Hurts, back then, we believe things would have turned out differently. Do your daughter a favor. Do your family a favor. Dating violence is real. Believe me, I know. Read When Dating Hurts, then pass a copy on to someone who needs to see it. When it comes to something as insidious as dating violence, there are no do-overs.